Welcome to the Well Woman Show, where we use intersectional feminism, mindfulness, leadership, and strategy to support smart women to change the world without anxiety, insecurity, and burnout. On the show, we challenge the status quo and support you to unlearn harmful messages that keep you playing small so you can activate your superpowers and live with joy, confidence, and ease. I'm your host, Giovanna Rossi. Hello, hello, well women. Welcome back to the show. I'm Giovanna Rossi, your host. And today on the show, the topic is workplaces that work for women. And today I get to interview Zainab Tan, a professor of the practice at MIT Sloan School of Management. She's also the president of the nonprofit Good Jobs Institute, where she works with companies to improve their operations in a way that satisfies employees, customers, and investors alike. She's the author of The Good Jobs Strategy, How the Smartest Companies Invest in Employees to Lower Costs and Boost Profits. This is a topic near and dear to my heart. Before we get there, though, I do want to mention that I am partnering with 100 Women to showcase and celebrate organizations in the community that are doing great work at the grassroots level. 100 Women Albuquerque gathers quarterly donations to donate to a local nonprofit. And so I'd love for you to join us on August 16th at Rio Bravo Brewing to meet like-minded women committed to making a difference. You can go to wellwomanlife.com slash 318 show for more information. The Well Woman Show is thankful for support from the Well Woman Academy at wellwomanlife.com slash academy. I'm speaking with Zainab Tan. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. And why don't we start with who are you in the world today? Well, I am a daughter, a spouse, a mother, and I'm also a professor of the practice at MIT Sloan and president of non- the nonprofit Good Jobs Institute. And I'm recently, you know, the author of a new book called The Case for Good Jobs. Yes. And we'll get into talking about that. I'm excited to talk to you about it. It's an updated book. You also wrote another book called The Good Jobs Strategy. Zainab, why don't you share a little bit about what your work is and how does it impact women and girls? Yeah, so my work is focused on work in frontline settings like retail, call centers, factories, nursing homes, hospitals, oftentimes service settings, but but it includes manufacturing as well, frontline settings. And what we find is that women are disproportionately represented in these industries. Women are people of color and, and immigrants. So, so the work is completely related to women in a very direct way. Yes. I'm glad you pointed that out right away because your work really does impact those folks that you named low-wage workers. It sort of centers those folks as far as how can we create good jobs, both that benefit the workers and also the company. Can you tell tell listeners a little bit more about that and how you sort of came to to do this work? Like why why focus on this now? My journey to this work goes back to 20 years, uh, more than 20 years. In late 90s, uh, I joined a group of researchers who had a project called Rocket Science Retailing. And I was a doctoral student at the time. And 
and, and, and I was in the field of operations management. I had studied engineering before. And the objective of our study was to use data and smart algorithms to help retailers maximize profits. And in our world of operations, managing product availability is about planning and analysis. You forecast the demand, you optimize inventory levels, et cetera. But what I found early on in my work was that managing product availability was also about managing people mm -hmm. and designing their work because oftentimes a product was at the store, but employees didn't have time to shelve it or they put it in the wrong place. So customers experienced a stock out and the data that was used in planning systems were oftentimes inaccurate because people made mistakes. These problems were very, very expensive. They led to lost sales, poor, poor merchandising decisions, high inventory costs, etc. So an obvious question for me was, why do they happen all the time? And this is where, you know, the operations part of me met the people part of operations because I found that stores that had more employee turnover had more problems. Stores that were understaffed had more problems. And, and this was my introduction. And in the, in the world of retail and lots of other frontline settings, the conventional wisdom was, this is the only way to operate. We can't afford to invest in people, pay them decent wages, provide them decent schedules so that they stay with us. The conventional wisdom is that, you know, low wages and the resulting high employee turnover and poor service are necessary to compete in the business. And, and what I found in my early research, and, and this is what my first book was about, was that that's not the case. Looking at companies like Costco, Trader Joe's, uh, others as well, I saw that companies could win with their customers and provide good jobs. That was a choice, even in low-cost retail. And that book was about the elements of the system that made that choice possible. First, I just want to acknowledge your journey is so interesting that you came from, and I love rocket science retailing. <laughs> so you came really from that, that business perspective, and then really came to understand that, that there's such a direct connection with, with the workforce and with supporting people. And just by way of background, I started a, an organization, you know, separately from this well woman show that supports businesses to adopt and implement family-friendly work place policies. So I really came from the perspective of how can we support women to thrive, you know, from my, from my work and, and my career, it, it was very centered on if we support women to thrive, their families will thrive and then communities will thrive. And so I sort of came at it from the opposite direction mm -hmm. in a sense, and, and came very quickly to the conclusion that in order to really support women in the workplace, we've we must help employers understand the, the benefit, the cost benefit to them and to their bottom line in investing in their workforce and, and really investing in creating family-friendly workplace policies. So I uh, just wanted to mention that for context as we continue our conversation for listeners too. You know, can I mention that was, that's so interesting because to me, I came from this whole business perspective um, and that really appealed to my head because I realized companies are already paying for poor workplace practices. They're already paying for low wages and how they treat their employees. But then I started interviewing a lot of frontline workers. And this is where I think I came to your part of the world. I interviewed so many people and so many women. And what I saw was hardworking, competent people, 
making so little money that they were working multiple jobs. They oftentimes couldn't sleep. They had no time to be able to take care of their children or attend to them because their schedules were changing all the time. They they were just, you know, racing with time um, all the time. And not only did their health suffer, but also the health of their children suffered as well. And and low wages are associated with, you know, lots of problems with with children as well. So, so, So in some ways, our words worlds intersected. Yes, absolutely. Just from different perspectives. And the work that you're doing now is really, really focused on how, and I love this because I think this is a, a missing piece of the puzzle, which is how can we support employers to maximize their operations and really strive for excellence in their operations so that they can understand that they can afford to, to implement really good wages and, and good workplace policies like predictable scheduling and health benefits and all the things that are going to help invest in their employees and help them thrive. Yes. And that's the, really the secret source of the good job strategy, the pursuit of operational excellence and designing operations. So the work is good. You know, the good job strategy is not just about higher pay or better benefits. It's it's a whole system. And, and it's a system that, you know, that, that's a winning system. And, and every business leader will say, of course, what does it take to win? It takes a great team. And of course, you have to invest in people to have that great team. But you also have to position that team for success. And that is the secret sauce of the good job strategy. So when you look at companies like Costco or Trader Joe's or Quick Trip or, or Four Seasons Hotels, Progressive, the list goes on in, in different sectors. They don't just pay more. They design the work differently. Everybody in the organization makes decisions so that employees can do their work in a productive manner so that they can serve the customer, so they can feel a sense of achievement, they can feel a sense of purpose and and pride in their work. But the high productivity and stability in their work is what enables the companies to be able to pay them well, to be able to provide them uh, good schedules, and to be able to create good working conditions. Yes, yes. And you've got some great examples of this. And I just want to mention the good job strategy was your the book before this one, which is The Case for Good Jobs. And in The Case for Good Jobs, you really take the strategy and, and talk about implementing it more as a system that goes beyond operations, but really goes into detail about how to support the workforce. Can you talk a little bit about that and just the difference between the two books? Yes. So after my first book came out, I started getting requests from company leaders and they would describe the vicious cycle that they were operating in with high turnover, poor service, poor operations. Uh, But they had a whole system and this was a system of mediocrity and, and, and they felt trapped in that system. And they realized they couldn't change just one or two things. Things, they had to make a system change. And the questions that they were asking me were, how do I make the case for change? How do I get my board on board? How do I get my investors on board? How do, um, if, if, if I get people on board, what changes do I make first? In a system change, you can't just change one thing, but you can't change your entire system at the same time either. So how do I make the change? What changes do I, do I make first? So this book is on the both why of the good job strategy 
and the how of the good job strategy. And my objective is to show business leaders that, look, the status quo with low pay and high turnover is worse than you may think. And here are all the costs associated with it. And getting out of that status quo and pursuing the good job strategy is less risky than you may think. And here are the ways to make it less risky. Yes. I love that. And, you know, anytime we're challenging the status quo or trying to really shift a system, it's a heavy lift and it takes a lot of educating and handholding and probably consulting um, and helping explain. And so your book is part of that effort. And I want to ask you, Professor, what about small business? I know a lot of your examples are with these large companies and there, there could be the argument that, well, they can do it because they're large, but we deal with a lot of small businesses that employ, actually, according to the Urban Institute, most low-income workers with children work inside small businesses. Our nonprofit Good Jobs Institute has been helping small businesses, bakeries, restaurants, oftentimes with, you know, five people. The bakeries could be just a couple of people and restaurants, maybe 10, 15 people. And one of my favorite examples of Good Jobs strategy adoption is a restaurant with two units, Mo's Original Barbecue in Maine. And they adopted this um, a couple of years ago. And the owner told us about how scared he was because he had read the first book and we did a short workshop with his team and and it was it, it still required you know you mentioned hand holding it requires a ton of courage too courage and conviction to be able to do this and last uh, a couple of months ago he was at my book launch event and he shared with everybody else there that not only have they been able to change the lives of people working there and the customers because the service is better and they're making more money uh, he said it changed his life too because now he doesn't have to work 65 hours a week and he doesn't have to be worrying about people problems all the time. He can count on his employees to show up to do their job well to deliver great service. And he shared this anecdote of a of a mother who said that this was the first year that she was able to purchase things for her children, for their school that wasn't from goodwill. And that meant a lot for this leader. Oh, okay. And so he actually did increase wages while improving operations and overall everybody was... Oh, absolutely. The, 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 all the companies we work with or or the, that we share the good job strategy with, the purpose is you redesign your operations. And because the operations are designed in a way that increases productivity, increases contribution, it enables to make pay investments as early as possible, as high as possible. Mm-hmm. So he did make big pay investments And we've seen small businesses make these pay investments. We've seen medium-sized businesses like 30 units of a retail chain in the Northwest called Mudbay. Now they're a lot bigger than 30 units, uh, but they made huge pay investments. And we've also seen pay investments in call centers like Quest Diagnostics at a huge retailer like Sam's Club. So all of these companies change the lives of their workers by paying them more, offering them more stable schedules. But Mm. the secret sauce that the enabler was redesigning their operations. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So for employers out there listening or or entrepreneurs that have a, a small business, we, you know, they can read the book and get the whole system. But just for listeners now, what would you say, where do people start? Like, as you said, it, you know, you can't change the whole system all at once, but what are one or two things that folks can think about now as they get started? Fantastic. The first place to start is with your customers, because 
for all of these leaders who were able to embrace change and the ones who started with the good job strategy from the beginning, they were super interested in creating value for the customer and always improving the value. So look at what it is that you offer your customers and say, what are some of the things that you want to be the best at? And then evaluate, what are some of the things that you're doing that doesn't add value to your customer? What are some of the other things that your employees are doing that don't add value to the customer? It's tedious work. Um, it's work that you ask them to do without so much of the benefit and try to subtract as much as possible. That subtraction enables the workload to be lower and that enables pay investments as early as possible and as high as possible. Mm. Because when you raise pay, you're not immediately going to see a decline in your employee turnover because pay is only one thing, you know, pay, pay, absence of sufficient pay guarantees high turnover, but the presence of sufficient pay doesn't guarantee that your turnover is going to be lower. So if you can improve pay and make the work better, less tedious, enable your employees to shine in front of your customers, those are the first points of um, entry into the good job strategy, the good job system. Ooh, okay. But, I, but I make love that. sure to center this around the customers. Don't make this about people. Make it about customers and winning with your customers. Mm, yeah. And one of the things you talk about in, in your strategy is reducing the amount of things that you offer. So reducing the number of products and services you offer so that you can really do a few things really well instead of a lot of things in a mediocre sort of way. So yeah. I wanted to throw that in there. And Professor, I wanted to ask you to about your example in your first book with Southwest Airlines. And it's such a great example of, you know, during the, the 9-11 attack, uh, a lot of airlines let go their, let their workforce go because of the disruption in the in the flights and services. However, you you talk about Southwest Airlines not doing that and how they kept their employees and really prioritized that. And then when customers came back and started flying, Southwest Airlines was the one that was ready to, to do that and they were able to expand. So without going into that too much, I just wanted, I, I was really curious how that can be related to the pandemic and companies laying off, downsizing during the pandemic. And if there's a comparison there, what did we learn and like which companies did it well? And if you have an example of that. Yeah, the, the, the pandemic is one case study, but the other case study is happening right now during, you know, a lot of technology companies in particular are resorting to layoffs, banks are resorting to layoffs. So this is happening right now as well. And, and one of the things that I could say is there's a ton of research that shows that layoffs do not have benefits to companies. It costs them a lot more. And it doesn't just cost in terms of the lives of people who impacted, you know, the lives of people who, who, who were laid off, but also the, the people who stayed, uh, the people who survived are now feeling guilty and they're now worrying about what, what their jobs are going to be like. So my first, I, I guess, advice would be, if possible, try everything else so that you don't have to lay off people because there are so huge costs associated with layoffs. And of course, one way to omit layoffs would be to have discipline 
in growth because what we also see is that so many businesses now grow without discipline that when there's an up and down you know they 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 have a layoff when when, when they're in the down cycle covid is an exception so so i'm going to focus on more on the business as usual but if you have to do a layoff if that is absolutely necessary then to be as specific as possible about who's going to be laid off and when and how many people and explain it as well and as compassionately as possible um, is the advice that that from the companies who have who, who have done it better. Yeah. Okay, great. I'm speaking with Zainab Tan, the author of The Case for Good Jobs, How Great Companies Bring Dignity, Pay, and Meaning to Everyone's Work. And we'll be right back. We're back on the Well Woman Show with Zainab Tan, author, president, and co-founder of the Good Jobs Institute. And Zainab, we're going into a segment called Superpowers for Success, which really allows listeners to learn from you as a leader. So we're going to go through a quick round of questions. The first one I have for you is, what does success in life mean for you? I don't have a precise definition, but success to me would include pursuing excellence in a few dimensions in life. Family and friends will be one dimension, career will be other, and then yourself, your health will be the other. So when it comes to family and friends, and and, and I put my family as, as first when I think about making choices and thinking about success, but creating a strong and loving family and being generous to your friends and family would be the definition of success, I guess. Of course, being able to make enough money to take care of your family, but also using your abilities, your position, um, um, for me, especially my, 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 my platform as a business school professor, to be useful to society, to be helpful and useful to as many people as possible in the society. Yeah. And when did you know you were really good at what you do? You know, this is a hard question for me to answer because I teach operations and I'm always thinking about continuous improvement. And I, I don't know if I ever say, oh, I'm very good at this or that. So so I always think about myself as work in progress and there's always room to improve. But the way that I get feedback from my students um, throughout the semester or at the end of the semester or when my students go out and they apply what they've learned in our course to not only improve business performance, but the change lives of of the employees who work for them, that's a signal to me that that I'm 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 doing a good job in 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 teaching my students or or um, when executives embrace the good job strategy, I feel like okay, I it's I'm I'm doing a good job. That's so great. And can you talk just briefly about your journey as a young person? coming to this country, to the United States on a scholarship and then and then pursuing your career here? Yes, I received a volleyball scholarship from Penn State and I came to the United States with one bag, one luggage. I've never been here before. Someone picked me up from the airport. Our first 10 days was preseason practice. I had no idea what kind of campus I was going into, big, small, you know, I, I didn't know anything. And my English was okay enough to score enough points on TOEFL to get in, but but I couldn't speak very well and I couldn't understand things very well. So it was a, the, the first couple of months was a challenge, but I loved being at Penn State. I studied industrial engineering there and, and I got the opportunity to play for volleyball for the winningest team 
coach in the whole NCAA history. When our coach retired a couple of years ago, he had the highest record for wins. And it was a privilege to learn from him and um, to, to, to play for him and to learn teamwork, continuous improvement, discipline, fundamentals, like all the things that also lead to success in life uh, from him. Yeah, sounds like you really drew drew a lot of lessons from from your time as an athlete. Coach Rostros, I am grateful to you. <laughs> That's great. Can you describe a personal habit that contributes to your well-being so you can do everything you do in the world? I take a walk every day, sometimes short walks, sometimes longer walks, and I try to breathe uh, well while I'm doing that. And, and I try to do high intensity exercise at least twice or three times a week. So th- those, th- that's probably one habit for my own well-being. Yeah. Okay. And what superpower did you discover you had only to realize it was there all the time? I've always been okay not doing what everybody else is doing. Like when I was 15 years old, I left a very good school, academic school, to move to Istanbul and play volleyball for the best team, but at a very mediocre high school. And at the time, I wasn't sure if those decisions were smart decisions because they weren't decisions that other people were making. And over time, I got to realize that maybe this is a nice superpower. Yeah, I d- I'm just going to say right here that I think that does count. Yeah, that absolutely counts as a superpower. And to me, what I'm hearing is you're really articulating how you have always sort of challenged the status quo in your personal life as a young person, and you continue to do that in your work. And in my marriage. <laughs> yeah, I love it. How do I you mean, do that I mean, in your marriage? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm from Turkey. I'm from the Middle East. I'm Muslim. I'm married to a guy from Nicaragua who is a Catholic, and we have a very different different, uh, different home, but it's a happy home. Yeah. Okay. Just give us one example of how you have challenged the status quo within your marriage. That's so interesting and relevant. Uh, when we got married, we got married in 1999 and my husband had to go to Costa Rica. That's where their family had a business and he went back there and I stayed here. And then I got a job at Harvard Business School as an assistant professor. He did not want to move here and I didn't want to move there. So we went back and forth. I would go there, stay at Boston for two weeks and then go to Costa Rica for two weeks. It was not great. Uh, but when we had our first child, I left, I left my work for two years. I said, okay, I am moving to Costa Rica. I'm not going to be away from my husband when I have it, when we have a child together. And these were all decisions that were not really what other people were making. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think women, it's such a challenge to figure out what what to do with our career and our family and, and everything. There's so many expectations that are put on us to do certain things. Really following what you need and what, what's best for you and your family is always going to be the most important. So Zainab, just a couple more questions. What advice would you give your younger self, say your 25-year-old so this advice is may may not be uh, the advice that you would think, but I would have said if you have found the right person. And if you definitely want to have a family, don't wait until your 30s to have kids. There's no good time to have kids from a career perspective, but there's a good time from a health and physical perspective. I had multiple miscarriages back to back, and I, I and I just wish that I had made that decision earlier. That's a very personal mm-hmm. one. But then a yeah. more general one is, you know, remember compounding and read more books. <laughs> 
<laughs> and thank you for bringing that up about, about having kids. Yeah, I, I also had children quite late in the scheme of things. I don't think I would do it differently, but I definitely give other people advice. You said it beautifully. Do you identify as a feminist? I believe in equal rights. So I guess, yes, of course I am. And what are you reading right now? What's on your nightstand? Demon Copperhead Bar by Barbara Kingsolver. It's a fiction book and I'm loving it. Ooh, okay. We'll add that to our list of book recommendations from our guests. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show today. Oh, it's been a pleasure to be with you, Joanna. Thank you. That's it for our show today. Remember, if you need support to live your well woman life, head over to wellwomanlife.com. As a reminder, we are on NPR every week. So be sure to tune in at npr.org slash podcasts and search for The Well Woman Show. If you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment and subscribe and leave a review. This helps raise visibility, which is super helpful when it comes to producing the show every week. For feedback, comments, or just to let me know you were listening, find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Well Woman Life. I'm Giovanna Rossi for The Well Woman Show. Until next time, have a super powerful week.